Hi, welcome back to the Indie Wine Podcast. This is episode four. My name is Matt Wood, and today I'm chatting with Chad Hines of Iruai Wines, formerly known as Method Sauvage. Chad's working with lots of Alpine varieties, including Trousseau, Pulsar, Mondusque, Wurzstraminer, and Sauvignon in the Shasta Cascade area of Siskiyou County in far northern California and up into southern Oregon even. Iruai is specifically in Etna, California. He explains a bit more about some of the characteristics of these varietals that aren't all that widely planted in California and some of the nuances of the region from a farming and winemaking as well as a cultural perspective. Talk about how he got his start in winemaking and the influence of music in wine tasting. Hope you enjoy. Here we go. Iruai, yeah. So like ear ooi. Okay. Um basically when we were trying to figure out a name for it, we wanted to find the oldest name we possibly could for the valley that we're in. And so we found an old map in a museum. And it had our valley designated as Iruai, which was uh, a Shasta word for what they called this area. Does Method Sauvage still exist in any way or have you kind of moved on from that? Yeah, no, it, it's, um, it, it exists in the sense that like most of the wines we made under the Method Sauvage name still exist. So there's still Bloom Phase, there's still Blood and Flowers Syrah. Uh, Tierra Extrana Cab Franc, those are all things that were once Method Sauvage, and we keep doing them, but now the, the heading is no longer there. So it's all just under this Iroi moniker. Just to keep things simple, because for a while we were doing both, and it just seemed to confuse people more than it did, uh, more than it did kind of frame the different projects, which is why I had two names originally. Um, so it just became clear that nobody needed them to be separated to understand it. And it actually would be easier if they could just, you know, if we could just go with one. And since we moved everything up here and this is where we're planting and kind of home base, it made sense to stick with Iroi as kind of like, uh, you know, the future, the new thing. I think I remember you saying it started out as kind of like high elevation designation. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. The, the mm -hmm. Iroi yeah, exactly. is going to be kind of the higher elevation vineyards. Yeah, I mean, it was going to always be based up here, um, but at the time we started it, I don't think we really knew we could pull off, like, being here full-time or anything like that, or, you know, I think we thought it might be a fun little side project where we planted some vines in this area, because it's where my wife's from and we have friends and family, um, but I think I, at the time when we started it, probably assumed that we'd still stay in the bay and we would kind of, you know... 10 vineyards up here part of the year, bring down the fruit, and it would be this little side thing, which is why it had its own name. Um, but it was always, you know, high elevation, alpine varieties. And while we were in the process of kind of figuring out where we would plant and what we'd plant, um, we started making wines under that heading from different areas that were high elevation, though, to kind of uh, get our sea legs and see what they do and how they behave and um, you know, get inspired for things that we'd want to plant, that sort of stuff. What were your first thoughts about moving the, the winery and the, the wine scene or, or vineyard scene when you first got the idea to maybe check it out as far as looking at maybe planting vineyards or, or moving up there or even just getting grapes from there? What were the growing conditions and the, the vineyards like up there? Well, where we are specifically, so where we're planting and where we make the wine, 
Um, there are no vineyards um, and no wineries, really, um, which was part of the excitement of it, um, the novelty and not feeling like mm-hmm. our kind of interesting ideas had to conform to anything pre-established um, was exciting. Um, that and the fact that it was an unusual kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, terroir being so high elevation and mountainous and forested and stuff. But about an hour south of here is um, Trinity County, um, and there's an AVA, Trinity Lakes. And that's where we found kind of the closest um, synonymous location um, where people are already making wine and growing grapes. Um, So that's where we actually now have some land leased, um, and we're working with what was already growing there and also grafting and planting in that area because it's, um, like I said, pre-established to where there's actually... Um, people to help us out, um, people to help get the planting going faster than we've been able to do here, um, which is how we already have wines kind of ready to go, which is cool. Um, so that was interesting. Um, they had already come to the conclusion that like Alpine was a good direction before we'd even heard of them and had already thought about planting here. Um, so they were doing mainly Germanic things. That's where we get like a lot of Blaufrankisch, um, Sylvaner, Riesling, Gewürztraminer and stuff. Um, so it was a good kind of um, proof of concept, I guess you could say, seeing their success with those varieties there. And then when the thought of actually moving everything up here started to seem more real, it made sense to try to basically replace what we were working with in Sonoma County um, and the surrounding areas and see if we could do it from fruit we would get in the Rogue Valley, which is only about an hour and a half to two hours north of where we are. So that's, that was something that I didn't have a lot of experience with Rogue Valley stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of I kind of just pursued making that move anyways and hope it would work out. Um, but since then, I've, I've learned a lot about the area, and it's, uh, I think, really, really underrepresented out there. I don't think people really are that aware of it, and it's... It's by no fault of its own. I think it's mainly just kind of um, a place where people tend to make wine that they sell there in tasting rooms. So unless you're going there, you're not really that accustomed to seeing it, unlike the Willamette Valley, which is, you know, world famous. Sure. But as a region, it's really diverse and unique. Um, It is different than the Willamette Valley. It is warmer, but it still has some cool climate areas. It's got more elevation swings to work with. Um, So it's really... To me, it's been great, and I think it's really enhanced our wines. Um, coming out of the Bay Area, which obviously has some of the most famous wine-growing regions in the world, um, in like Sonoma and Napa and stuff, and Santa Cruz, um, I personally found like our wines could feel boxed in, where sometimes you would just be trying to compare them to your neighbor, you know. And if you did a really good job, it would taste like theirs because they did a good job too. So coming to an area that I had no preconceived notion of and an area that doesn't already do that much natural wine um, mm-hmm. was really exciting for that reason of going like, I'm not trying to compare this to anybody here. I'm just seeing what happens if we make Syrah our way in this new area with a different climate and that sort of thing. You kind of have some of those vineyards yourself, I imagine, in kind of your slice of the world, the natural wine world, instead of sort of sharing sharing the grapes with a lot of other producers yeah which which i mean i I probably could sound like selfish or something which isn't my goal (laughs) but um i I think (laughs) part of it is like um 
uh, I don't know if you're in a space in the East Bay and you're trying to find organic grapes, there's only so many vineyards with organic grapes at the moment. And it's getting better, which is great. And so what you end up finding is everybody kind of working with the same vineyards and making a similar style of wine. And that's no fault of anybody's. But it just uh, wasn't that inspiring to me. Whereas, you know, like I could go to the Bay and try a whole bunch of Syrahs and I would love a lot of them guaranteed because they're great. Um, but they wouldn't taste like the Syrah that we make currently from the Applegate Valley. And that is just exciting to me. It's not that one is better. It's just like, it's more inspiring to me to do it that way. You're planting your own vineyards up there also, is that correct? Two going. What is it that you're, you're planting? So yeah, we have the first thing we did. Well, we did a trial vineyard before we moved up here and that still exists, but it's, we've let it go wild as a further experiment because it was already really small and it's not on land that we own Um, so that's just kind of a fun mix of all sorts of crazy Alpine stuff. We got cuttings of the first like proper vineyard that we planted is behind our house and that's all Trousseau. So we did that in 2021. So we'll hopefully get a little bit of fruit next year and then the next year, a little bit more. And then hopefully Mm -hmm. a year after that, we'll get like a nice chunk. And then going forward, that'll be like our Trousseau is all from there, um, would be awesome. And um, we have a new little piece of land about 10 minutes down the road that we, it's bigger, so it'll take a while to plant out um, because we've learned that planting grapes is long, takes a lot of time. It's very expensive. (laughs) And so we're kind of like little bits here and there. Um, So that's starting with Savignon um, that we're doing something a little different because it's a bigger piece of land. We're going to do dry farming and head trained. Oh, wow. Very interesting. That is something that will probably take longer to really establish itself, which is fine. You know, in the long run, it'll be, I think, better for it. That sounds amazing that you're able to dry farm the the vineyards up there. Are you doing all the farming yourself or do you have some crews that you work with to help with the farming? Yeah, well, in Trinity County, the stuff, um, like the land we lease and stuff, it actually comes with basically staff um, that work on the wider area um, okay. so that we do we ha- we're, we're like more we have input but we don't really try to like step on any toes <laughs> they kind of have it dialed yes, uh, so we don't do a whole lot of the actual labor there ourselves here there's no established like crews <laughs> so we do it ourselves and with the help of like friends and you know people we kind of hire out just to do like fun day labor type stuff in the future we will probably have to like adapt that approach as we plant more and more. Uh, but yeah, currently we're doing it all ourselves, um, which is exciting, but we don't actually have a lot of uh, farming background. So it's also a uh, a, a, a learning curve is, is um, you know, hitting us in the face as we do it, which is kind of fun and scary. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me some of the background on some of the grapes that you're planting and working with? You know, it's a lot of Alpine varieties aren't super widely planted in the U.S. and in California and that not everybody might be familiar with. Do you mind running down some of the profiles of some of the grapes that you're working with? Yeah, totally. So we knew we wanted to do Trousseau kind of right out of the gate. Um, It was something we'd already been working with um, from a few other vineyards and people have always responded really well to it. Um, And of all the grapes that are like purely kind of alpine it seems to be one of the more recognizable ones, even though, you know, 99% of people wouldn't say that. But within the wine world, it has a little bit more of a uh, a mystique 
and like a, a recognition. So we're like, if we're going to try to like take this Alpine approach, let's do it in a way that will be um, to, to the, to a wine person, uh, a person in the industry, they will not just see it as a novelty. They'll see it as like, Oh, they're trying to do this thing that I have an understanding of. So I can taste it and compare it to something more benchmarky as opposed to like, Oh, here's some skin contact, random obscure grape, you know, where they're just like, huh, whatever. Um, so we wanted to start there. And then the next thing we did was Savignon because those kind of have like a nice similar, you know, they're from the same region, both red and whites that are very kind of like noble in that region. Um, I mean, personally, Savignons I've had from the Jura are probably like some of my favorite wine drinking experiences I've ever had. You know, like they kind of like okay. compare to like white burgundy and stuff in my mind, the good ones. Um, so to me, that was like a no-brainer intro. Um, these things that are unusual, but they have kind of like, the, they have benchmarks that you could try to achieve um, in stylistic approaches and stuff like that. And then beyond that, it starts to get a little bit more esoteric and a little more unusual. Um, so we're working with things like Blau Frankish um, in Trinity already. Um, Blau Frankish has been compared to like Cabernet Franc in some ways. Um, and it does, it can, it can kind of have those like Bordeaux vibes, which is really cool. Obviously anything Alpine is never going to be the same as a Bordeaux experience just cause, um, the way things ripen is different. So it has more of like a punchy freshness, which I really like, but it is like a deeper red. Um, we're working with Mondus, which similarly kind of unusual, um, kind of like a love child between Gamay and Syrah, stylistically speaking. It's not genetically related to Gamay, but it is genetically related to Syrah. So it's often like having that kind of meaty, smoky side of Syrah, but with this package that's really like a little bit lighter, um, a little more acid driven, um, which is really fun. We already work with some Savignon that was in Trinity, which is very exciting. Um, it's a mutation of Savignon that's a little more yellowed, so it's a richer, fruitier version of Savignon. Okay. Um, what we have planted now here is the kind of more like green expression, which is should be a little more acid-driven. And I'd say probably the best Savignons I've had are more that direction, so probably a little more ageability and that sort of thing. We're hoping to plant Terraldigo in the near future. Um, I think that could be a red grape that really does well here. You've worked with that already, just not yeah. from your own vineyard? So yeah, we've been getting it from a vineyard closer to Mount Lassen. So it's like two and a half hours south of here, um, but it's still not totally out of the area. Um, so that's been really fun just to see what the variety is like and explore it and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's been going into blends mainly, but this year we're going to do like 100% Toraldigo. So that's really cool. Um, but we do think that that is like on the horizon soon of things we want to plant. We're working with Pulsard, um, which is often kind of akin to Trousseau, but generally a lot lighter um, in pigment. It can be a little intensely reductive, so you kind of have to be careful with it. But so far, we're really happy with what we're getting out of it. And we're going to do 100% Pulsard this year, too. In the past, we haven't had enough production, so that's gone into a blend. Let's see what else. I mean, there's a million things we're working with. Gruner, Veltliner, very like white flower, chamomile. Um, super crunchy and acidic, really yummy. And then, yeah, we've been doing a lot of stuff with Gewurz, mainly in skin contact form, which I don't know. It's one of those things. It's kind of like Pinot Gris. I think Pinot Gris in skin contact form is like almost like the complete form of it. Uh, I think it almost makes a better red than a white wine. Hmm. Um, 
And it's the same thing to me with Gewürz. It's this thing that naturally has this like rosy color to it. And I think like with the skins, you're able to get away from some of the like more negative uh, negative reactions people often think of with Gewürz, which is that it's like syrupy and rosy. Um, and you get this more like umami-ish textural, I don't know. It's uh, something a little different. Um, and that's been a fun thing we've been exploring a lot. And so we do like a white blend that has a large component of skin contact Gewürz. And then we do a little on its own that we age in like acacia barrels, which is cool. Why the acacia barrel for the Gewürz? Well, acacia is something we've been exploring a lot in general. Um, I had a mentor back in the day named Kevin Kelly, who was um, into a lot of fun things, but one of them was acacia. Um, his kind of attraction to it was that as far as growing wood is concerned, it's a much more sustainable wood to grow um, and like a fast rate. Okay. So like domestically, if somebody were to start an acacia like cooperage, it would be a much more sustainable business than trying to start like an oak cooperage. It's like way faster to grow. Okay, interesting. And then stylistically, the way he often talked about it was um, if you have a new oak barrel and a new acacia barrel side by side and you put whatever wine into it, the effect on the wine, um, a new oak barrel gives the effect of like bacon on wine was the way he saw it. So it's like smoky and spicy and very rich. Um, an acacia barrel, even new, um, is more like this like subtle Serrano ham. Um, so it's this like pretty and kind of lifted and like um, nutty and nuanced. It's like, it's this thing that I find most people who taste it mm -hmm. but aren't familiar with it don't even think it's a wood flavor. They just go like, oh, there's something lifted about this wine. So it's um, a cool almost enhancement to a wine that just comes from the vessel which is, you know, a controversial idea, but it's fun for us to play with a little bit with some of the skin contact whites, which are already, they're already doing so much. It's kind of fun to have something frame it um, with this like lifted character. So, so that's kind of, I guess, uh, why we've been playing with it a little bit. What's your fermentation regime tend to be for your reds? Are you doing mostly whole cluster or carbonic or a little of both or destemmed? One of the coolest things about moving here and having like our own space to make wine where we're not in people's way basically is that our process has really evolved um to just fit our lifestyle sort of so a lot of people talk about in farming this kind of like um fukuoka no farming method of farming so like you know setting things up to not have to do things mm -hmm. um which is part of what we're pursuing in the vineyard but in the winery it's actually like already more clear that approach. So with all the skin contact whites or reds, we're basically kind of shepherding the grapes through a few steps, wherein we do almost nothing once those are set up. So we do, we don't do anything destemmed currently. Um, everything comes in and gets sealed off um, in tanks. So full carbonic method. We do that for, you know, a week or two. Mm -hmm. Then we do tread them, but super gently. So we just like foot tread once or twice a week, honestly. Um, and we just do smell tests to make sure there's no volatility. And that can go anywhere for, you know, one to four weeks of just kind of slowly, slowly breaking everything down. And then after that, once there's enough juice accumulated, we'll do the submerged cap. So basically pushing down all the skins and the fruit. So the juice is on top. Mm -hmm. So you're not having spoilage, um, but you're also blocking things from oxygen. And we do that for another month, sometimes two, depending if we want to have like a more like textural red. So what we end up with that process is like 
very little daily labor at all. Um, most of what keeps people in cellars, you know, for months on end during harvest is doing multiple punch downs a day. And there are sometimes, if you know, depending on when fruit comes in, that we just can like do almost nothing for many days during harvest. And it's like a very like freeing feeling. And then the end result is this wine that has really been on its own natural evolution. Um, and having all of those processes, you get this like lift and freshness from the carbonic. The treading helps break things down, gives you more of that traditional maceration. And then the extended maceration, you know, it eventually ties together all the tannin structures so that you get something that almost mimics the act of aging in a vessel. It's almost like once it's pressed off the skins, it tastes like it's been in a barrel for a year already. Um, so it's kind of um, with us in a place where we can't really age wine for a really long time just because we don't have outside funding and stuff like that. We need to sell the wine. It's a really cool way to get the wine in a drinking state really fast. Um, and it's kind of like, if you can, why wouldn't you? <laughs> I don't know. So you're, you're generally bottling within that next year then, right? Yeah, as of right now, everything is bottled within the next year. Um, the longest age stuff is bottled in like September. What's the growing season tend to be like? Yeah, well, here specifically is a little more extreme than the surrounding area. So we're having like bud break in like early to mid-May. Um, whereas, you know, if you're in Sonoma County, you could see bud break in like early February, late January sometimes. Um, so really different in that sense. Um, if you get to like the Rogue Valley to the north or Trinity to the south, you're going lower in elevation and things are a little earlier than that. So depending on the year, you know, at least two to three weeks earlier in those areas um, from where we are here. Okay. So here is a region that has a very short growing season, which is part of why I look to places that are also really high elevation with shorter growing seasons. But it is a pretty generous and warm growing season. So I've always described it as like, you know, a hot growing season bookended by very cool extreme weather. So it kind of like locks in a certain amount of acidity and structure but then it's like you do get this weird juxtaposing fruitiness too from that like ripening season being so generous. So it's just very different. It's it's kind of like it's its own expression. It's very much the opposite of like Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir where it's like long, slow, gradual evolution that you pick in like November. You know what I mean? It's this like mm -hmm. flash in a pan, um, which to me can sometimes lead to more transparency of that like more soil, earthy character. You know, it hasn't been stripped away over a long growing season of ripening, which again, it's not to equate one is better than the other. It's just like a different expression. Wonderful. So backtrack a little bit, but how did you get started in the wine business? It was kind of um, by accident. I went to a really unusual culinary school in Sonoma County, like right out of high school. It was kind of like based around like holistic cooking and that sort of stuff. And when I graduated that, we were kind of primed to either like work in like these like really organic focused kitchens or even like work for like um, clients, like being a personal chef, that sort of thing. And I graduated right when the recession happened around 08, 09. And there was just like no cool restaurants hiring people. <laughs> and there was like no, no rich people that wanted to hire a personal chef. It was like the worst time to have a very niche, um, I don't know, like a niche culinary position without a lot of experiences. Like nobody cared. Um, and I was in Sonoma County already and I just started drinking wine because it was I was there. It was fun. And so I just started doing some wine classes at like the JC almost to kill time because I couldn't really get a good job. So I was like, well, I'm here. Let's go back to school, I guess. 
and really quickly got kind of pulled in more unusual directions that made wine go from a thing that was just kind of like fun and why not to like, oh, I'm fascinated by this in a way that at least meets and then eventually superseded my interest in even cooking, which was um, originally I had a, a an instructor who was really good at just describing the difference between old and new world wine and the importance of kind of like at the time, which was like kind of novel. Now it's like talked about to death, but like lower alcohol, more acidity, more balance, you know, and he would talk often about how California wines in the 90s age well because they were balanced. Um, and then since then they got overblown and now those wines don't age and all these things. So I was really interested in this like old world thing. And I heard a podcast um, on a whim that had um, Hardy Wallace before he'd done Dirty and Rowdy. He was basically like the seller hand and the marketing guy for who became kind of like my mentor, Kevin Kelly, at this little local spot mm-hmm. in Sonoma called the Natural Process Alliance in Selenia. And they were doing wine that they would sell in clean canteens within an hour of the location and do no sulfur. And they did like mixtures of skin contact. And at the time it was like really crazy shit that now is like very standard, <laughs> like for like a natural <laughs> wine environment. It's like very basic. Um, but at the time it was like mind blowing. And I went there and, you know, got to know Hardy and Kevin. And I just was like, oh, well, this is amazing. Like never really looked back from that point on and got into that, started doing harvests there and places like Wind Gap, now Pax. Um, and then got to the point where I knew I wanted to make wine, but still this was during the recession and these people weren't going to hire people full time. And so I was like, well, if I want to make a living making wine, I just have to make my own. Um, and so the way I made that happen was I started working wine retail in San Francisco and would kind of make a very small amount of wine on the side. So originally just like a few barrels and the next year, a few more barrels. But because I was able to make it um, in some of these actual wineries of my mentors, I was able to legally sell it. So it was, you know, a legitimate endeavor as opposed to just like an experiment. Mm -hmm. And within a few years, I started doing wine sales for a distributor who sold not entirely, but a lot of like natural wine. And that gave me a whole lot of flexibility to be able to grow the winemaking thing because it's not a nine to five type gig. So you can really, you know, pick and choose when you work. And yeah, grew what was then Method Sauvage, which started in 2013, kind of every year for many years and kind of never looked back until 2019. We moved the whole production here, quit our day jobs and the pandemic hit. And I was like, well, that was a really good time to to quit being a a wine salesman to restaurants that can't open. So it was like a a very fortunate um, evolution that we've been on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I feel bad for everybody. So I'm not, I don't mean to laugh. It's more of like a, like glad I steered the car away from the edge of the cliff type thing. You were familiar with the area up there before, but still, I imagine it must have been a, a pretty large shift moving up there day to day and probably culturally also. It's a much different area than Berkeley, Richmond, Oakland, San Francisco. You need trouble like adapting? It is very different. It's like a, a very like libertarian stronghold, I'd say. So you get like the more Republican side and the hippie side all converging in this weird little place. Um, Mm -hmm. There were some like early, like having to just like come to terms with the reality of some of the politics of the area, which is still difficult, frankly, sometimes, but um, I've kind of like learned to learn to like 
know what to say, what not to say, and try to like understand people that are different instead of just judge them and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It helped a lot that we moved here right before the pandemic because I think a lot of the the weird getting used to a whole new environment would have been a lot more stark if we just moved up and it was just normal life, you know? And like all of our friends were just living normally at home, but instead everybody was kind of like so changed all the time that it just felt like this was another part of that change was being here, but also like this lockdown happening. And it was like weirdly really good timing for that kind of transition socially and stuff. And then we had a kid on the way out of lockdown which changed our life again in a way that no matter where we lived would have been like a permanent change. So like, yeah, now that we're out of lockdown, we've moved and we have a kid. Life is definitely different, but it's almost like I don't think about the location difference anymore. It's just like, oh, well, yeah, like, of course, life's different. We had like a pandemic and a kid. And it does help a lot that about an hour north is Ashland, Oregon, which honestly, really, um, it feels kind of like a little mini Berkeley politically and there's like some truly like amazing restaurants um so in like great like you know farmers markets and grocery stores so most of what we liked about living in an urban area we can still get not a daily basis but you know like weekly or so so that's that makes it really easy to kind of like have that transition occur for us is like still having access to those things despite like where our house is being like so isolated yeah, I guess the world was going through some pretty radical changes about the time you moved there also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, one one more radical change is not <laughs> put it on top of the pile, I guess. It seems like also like after we did that, a lot of people kind of did that change anyways because of the pandemic. Like we did it without intending to. Mm -hmm. But then I saw all sorts of people like moving to like stay with family for a long, you know what I mean? Or like going to their, if they were lucky enough to have like, you know, a cabin they'd just go live there you know like so it was really weird it was like we just felt like we were doing what a lot of people were doing around us yeah um, so it was interesting yeah has the region changed at all as far as grape growing or winemaking since you moved up there three four years ago have you seen any changes yeah where we are followed you up there yet uh the short answer is no <laughs> There's there's been no changes to like people coming up here to start planting or even make wine or anything like that. Trinity seems pretty much the same as it was. So yeah, no, not really. I think it'll probably be, I think until we like have vineyards here that are fully producing and like people can really come visit and experience it, it'll be hard for somebody to like want to take that leap. But you never know. I welcome anybody to come. It'd be fun to have somebody to, to hang with, you know, but um. <laughs> I'd say in the Rogue Valley to the north, there are some changes that I've seen. Some of the more established older vineyards um, were kind of like purchased by people, but with very good intentions. So like Cowhorn was like a famous biodynamic vineyard, which was already doing really great farming. And then with this new purchase, the winemaking is going in a direction that's a little bit more balanced than it used to be um, in a way that I think is like a, a progress. And then similarly, another vineyard that's like all based on biodynamics, Troon, has been going through this kind of um, ownership change and they're really dialing things in and doing a lot of like experiments with orange wine and skin contact. Um, and we have some friends that have like a, a tasting room collective called the Catalyst Wine Collective. So like each little individual winery is one's called Sound and Vision and they do some really cool um, like skin contact Riesling and lighter bodied things like sparkling Barbera and 
Um, Goldback is another producer within that collective that just does some really solid like Roan stuff and Shannon. So I'd say that any evolution I've seen has been there as opposed to here. But like I said, there's just nobody else is the reason there's no evolution here. <laughs> so there's there's not much to evolve. Um, but eventually, I, I think I think we won't be the only people here forever. But you never know. I'm okay if we are too. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about music. For every wine you release, there's you know a playlist that goes along with it, some pretty varied choices on the playlists. And how does that kind of figure into your your lifestyle, your your winemaking? Music seems important to you, I guess. It's pretty cool to have the the playlists along with the the wine releases. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's awesome to hear that you feel that way. Uh, yeah, super important. I think um, the the music, and then we also do like movie pairings, and like lately we've. We just keep going further down the rabbit hole and we've done like tarot card pairings. It's really like an overall goal of expressing to people and consumers and people in the wine club and that sort of thing. Like this idea of like psychic terroir, um, which I think when I say it, some people think it's like a joke or being goofy. But like I mean it very sincerely, like I very sincerely think like a playlist can explain a wine better than tasting notes if it's done correctly and the wine is of a certain style. Especially because, you know, if I write tasting notes when I pop a bottle or I write tasting notes three hours later or I write tasting notes two days later, they're all going to be different. You know, the wine is like this evolving, changing thing. So to really have something concise that explains it Mm -hmm. to me isn't really actually that. I mean, it's useful as a sales tool, but like as far as trying to express truth, it's really not that good. Whereas if you have like an hour and a half long playlist, it says a lot about like what my intention with the wine is. It says a lot about how it starts and evolves and changes. It's this thing that you can experience while drinking it, which kind of like marry these two like senses, you know? It's a thing that sets a mood for a dinner that you can have with a lot of people and like you don't have to tell them about it, but like subliminally they're drinking the wine and hearing the music and it's setting this experience and then what you talk about follows is like from that. And it's one of those things where like, to me that's all like so much more interesting than like tart cherry and forest floor and you know what I mean? Like these tasty notes things. Yeah. It's just like, it's like, I mean, again, they're, they're, they're needed to sell wine, but they're just like, to me, they're very limited. I think music taps into more of the, the ineffable side of wine, which is so cool. You know, like sometimes you drink a wine and you just drink a wine and you're just like, ah, oh, that was, that was good red wine, whatever next thing. But every once in a while you drink a wine and like, you have like an experience and like, it gives you intellectual feelings and thoughts and like it reminds you of things and um, music to me is similar. It expresses similar things and also like a similar array of things. So I really like trying to pair those things together, if only just to like make people think about the wine differently and go like, oh, okay, so this wine is supposed to somehow have something to do with this playlist and like just kind of try to go there. Um, and it seems to work pretty well for the people that are like down. Um mm-hmm. We've uh, we've definitely had a lot of people kind of like write to us or like tell us in person like how much that really like got them on board with what we were doing. So I feel like in that sense, it's been like a, a success, which is cool. Yeah, that's great. It's something really unique. And I, I don't think I've seen anybody else do the music. And I know I haven't seen anybody else do the tarot card. <laughs> you do the, the 1% for Shasta Indian Nation also. Can you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, I mean... It's one of those things where it's like, 
if you are going to have a business in California that is like a small business, you know, like ours is just me and my wife, it's really hard to like really do anything with uh, that actually does that much good. You know, like you're still serving like a capitalist function, which at the end of the day is like you are trying to find ways to save money to make more money. Like for it to work requires you to kind of mainly function in a way that isn't that like isn't giving that much back to anything even though like we can talk about the positives of organic farming and all that still at the end of the day like you know we're packaging things in bottles and putting them in cardboard cases and using gas to ship it and I guess at the end of the day we just try to like sit with those complications in any way we can and you know like the fact that we're like on this land that at one point was you know peopled by the Shasta people and some of them are still here and you know like the best thing we could do would be like to give them the land we own or something but the smallest thing we can do that still functions within like our business model is to like allot a certain percentage to give to them so it's like that's like the honest and non trying to like sound like we're doing something amazing because it's really like a minimum of what like I wish we could do but like to exist in a capitalist mm-hmm. system like it's at least a, it's something you know it's like Maybe eventually we can learn how to do more than that. But for now, it's like it's something we can do that like acknowledges where we are and like we're using this land to grow these things. And it's like we're profiting off that. And so like at least we're acknowledging what this land is and what it means and like something more than that. So that's kind of why we started that. I, I would hope in like 10 or 20 years that maybe we'll get more thought out. But it's a start anyways. Sounds like a great start have to start small sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just wanted to uh, see if you had any last thoughts and um, let people know where they can get your wines or anything new to look out for coming their way. Uh, Yeah, I I hope people will keep kind of following what we're doing. Um, We're still definitely in like the the building stage, you know, like the vineyards are young. We have like a fully functioning winery because we were able to buy a lot of grapes and stuff. But the goal is still in the future. Like eventually we want to like grow most of what we make and really have like a place for people to come to, to like experience what this place means on a viticultural level. So that is currently a thing we're still like working on. So yeah, um, you know, stay posted as that's going to evolve. Hopefully, you know, our website's the easiest place to send people to, um, eroiwine.com. That's got like all the fun, like playlists and it's got, you know, all the pairings and, Things you won't necessarily be able to find in stores are usually there. Um, so it's a good starting point anyways. But we do um, have distribution in most states, if not all. Um, so, you know, if you're in like a an urban area or near one, you should hopefully be able to find something of ours if you go to like the cool wine shop. That's at least the goal. Um, so, yeah, you know, we have like kind of two slightly larger production wines. They're still only like... 600 to 800 cases but that's the Shasta Cascade red and white wine and uh, they're blends so we can make more of them but and they're also lower in price but to me they're still like really expressive of like what we're doing you know like the white wine still has a lot of like acacia age skin contact demeanor. you know it's not just like some basic uh, simple white wine and the red has like all the cool varieties in it so there's like Trousseau and Mondeuse and Pulsard in it um, so it's a really good like if you don't know that much about us, those wines are usually in most of the stores and they're a really good starting point for what we're trying to do, I think. Finding new terroir in somewhere as crowded as California isn't easy. So I applaud you for being able to <laughs> to do that. It's definitely not a normal occurrence in, in this state. 
I think most of the people even in the state don't know that this area exists. So it's been uh, it's been fun. I know. I think it's probably not well suited to a lot of people in the industry, but it's well suited to us. So that's cool. Thanks for listening today to my interview with Chad. I really enjoyed hearing about this up and coming wine region, learning more about it. And the wines I've tasted from it over the last few years really have a uniqueness and freshness to them that I think many will enjoy. You can follow the podcast on wherever you're listening today and also the Instagram at Indie Wine Podcast for updates or indiewinepodcast at gmail.com. Next episode, we'll have a great interview with Craig from Harmeyer Wine Cellars. Thanks again. Have a good one.